Hello and welcome to another episode of Canada mit C, or in English, Canada with a C. My name is Annika Wekines. I am the project manager of the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung Canada. In today's episode, we will get to know more about the Conservative Party of Canada, its voters, its upcoming leadership race, and more. Today, we are honored to welcome Michael Chong as our distinguished guest, who has been actively involved in Conservative Party politics since the 1980s. Mr. Chong was first elected to Parliament in 2004 and represents the riding of Wellington Halton Hills. He currently serves as Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs for the official opposition. In 2006, he served in the Federal Cabinet as President of the Queen's Privy Council, Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs and Minister for Sport. Mr. Chong has been Chair of several House of Commons standing committees, such as Industry, Science and Technology, Canadian Heritage and Official Languages. He is a co-founder and has been a member of the All-Party Climate Caucus since it was founded in 2011. Today's interview will be conducted by Dr. Norbert Eschborn, Director of the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung Canada. Norbert, over to you now. Michael Chong, thank you very much for joining us today. My first question concerns the history of the Conservative Party of Canada and its different wings. Can you explain some of the different views within the party on core issues, please? Well, first, uh, let me say how delighted I am to be with Canada Metse and you as well, Dr. Eschborn. Uh, it's a good question you've just asked. The Conservative Pan uh, Party of Canada has always been a coalition party, and that's true of both of the two main parties in Canada, the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party. And so currently today, we're made up of different, uh, different types of conservatives. We have uh, social conservatives that are an important part of the party who focus on issues of concern to families, uh, concerns around uh, family issues and life issues. Uh, we also have a wing of the party that is uh, focused on uh, populism, uh, part of the party that has um, that is driven by uh, populism and populist instincts, uh, and another part of the party that uh, is focused on fiscal conservatism, uh, on a belief in balanced budgets, on limited government, uh, and on ensuring that taxes remain low. We have other wings of the party. Uh, for example, we have a wing of the party that believes in the expansion of free trade and free markets. Uh, belief in expanding uh, trade and investments across uh, between Canada and other trading countries. And that coalition um, has been in place for many, many years, in fact, many decades. Uh, you know, over the life of the party, over a hundred years, uh, we've seen the populist part of the party express itself in different ways. So in the 1920s and 30s, we saw the rise of a populist wing of the party called the progressives. Uh, and back then they were made of uh, farmers in rural Canada uh, that felt that big city uh, residents and big city businesses and Ottawa weren't paying attention to the concern of a rapidly uh, depopulating rural farming sector. Um, in the 1990s, we saw the rise of another populist movement, the reform movement, um, that also reflected the populism of the day. So uh, it's gone through different iterations, but the key elements of the party um, have always been there in one shape or form or another. 
for our German viewers, could you please provide an overview which parts of Canada, particularly which provinces and regions traditionally vote conservative and why? Well, that's a very interesting question. So when you go way back 150 years ago, urban Canada predominantly voted conservative and rural Canada predominantly voted liberal. Around 50, 60, maybe around 70 years ago, that flipped. And what, it, what started to happen was that the Conservative Party became the party of rural Canada and the Liberal Party became the party of urban Canada. And that, that change uh, that started you know, seven decades or so ago has remained in place to this day. And so traditionally, uh, Liberals have been strong in the large city regions of the country, and Conservatives have been strong in the rural areas of the country, as well as in Western Canada, and in particular, the three prairie provinces of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. And so that dynamic remains in place today. Uh, and so that, uh, that has meant that the uh, one part of the base of the Conservative Party is in the Prairie Provinces, and the other part of the base is in rural Canada, particularly in rural Ontario. And so that lays the foundation for the modern Uh, the geographic foundation for the modern Conservative Party. Um, the Liberal Party has traditionally found its strength in Quebec, uh, as well as in uh, Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. And that traditionally, in recent decades, has been their geographic base. From the outside, it does appear as if uh, at the local level of the CPC, there is not much active party life. Uh, to the contrary, it appears that the caucus of the party in the House of Commons is the heart and brain of the Conservatives in Canada. Is that true? And why is that so? Well, that's a great observation. And so in most provinces in Canada, uh, there are no parties at the municipal level. Uh, traditionally, uh, in most of uh, the provinces in Canada at the lower government, at the local government level, Uh, individual candidates run, but they and they and they may have their own uh, ideological uh, slant, their own ideological uh, tendencies, but they run as individual candidates and without an affiliated party banner. Uh, and so there are very few uh, candidates identified as party candidates running in municipal elections in Canada. There are some exceptions to that. Uh, in Vancouver, for example, in the city of Vancouver, uh, there are uh, party-affiliated municipal candidates and councillors who sit on Vancouver City Council, uh, as well as in the city of Toronto, where there are some candidates identified with a particular party. But for the vast majority of municipalities across Canada, uh, there are no uh, party affiliated candidates. Uh, so the federal, the Conservative Party really doesn't have a local municipal base like you would see in the United Kingdom, where both the Conservative and Labour parties have municipal wings of the party. Uh, what the Conservative Party does have, though, are affiliations with provincial Conservative parties. Uh, and so Most of those conservative parties at the provincial level are progressive conservative parties. Uh, some of them go by um, 
different names, such as the United Conservative Party of Alberta. Um, and some of the uh, relationships are closer and some of them are more distant. So, for example, in Ontario, there is a fairly close relationship between the federal Conservative Party and the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. Um, often uh, members of the boards of the riding associations at the provincial level often are very similar to the members of the board of the federal riding association. So that, uh, that uh, has been in place. Uh, th those relationships uh, have persisted at the provincial level in most provinces, not all, but most provinces. Um, the federal party that exists today was created in 2004. It was the merger of a prairie populist party uh, that had its roots in the reform party, which subsequently became the, uh, the Canadian Alliance with the old progressive conservative party. And so those two parties merged to form the modern conservative party. Uh, and that's why the name of the federal party is different than many of the uh, provincial party names, which, which have retained the progressive conservative moniker. Women represent 50% of the population roughly, but only 30% of parliamentarians are female. Currently out of 338 members of the House of Commons, only 103 are women and only 22 of them are conservatives. What can be done to have more conservative women at the level of parliament and government? Well, I don't believe in quotas and most of my colleagues in the party do not believe in hard quotas to achieve better representation. Uh, so we believe that the most effective way Uh, to achieve better representation uh, on part of women is for the party to do a better job of recruiting women to run as candidates in ridings where they have a chance of winning the election. Uh, and so there are efforts ongoing to, to increase uh, the level of representation, but really it starts at the top with the leader of the party uh, making an effort to seek out Uh, women to run in good conservative writings where they have a chance of winning. And uh, that, in our view, is the best way to go. The challenge with a hard quota system is that, in our view, it can tend to uh, delegitimize uh, members who have fallen under the quota system, uh, members of disadvantaged groups, because it calls into question whether or not uh, the, mer the meritoriousness of whether Uh, the meritoriousness of the nature by which they were selected. Um, and so there's been always a, a fairly strong aversion to hard quotas, both in the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party, I might add. The world looked at Ottawa during the last months when the city saw an influx of truckers and others from across Canada who came together to express their dissatisfaction about the government's COVID-19 vaccine mandate and its plan to require all those who haul goods across the US-Canada border to be fully vaccinated. Some of the images of the protesting crowds reminded many of the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the US Capitol. What is your view on the so-called Freedom Convoy? Well, my view is quite simply twofold. First, Uh, I believe strongly in the constitutionally protected freedoms that allow people, that give people the fundamental freedom to peacefully protest and the fundamental freedom to freely associate 
Um, these fundamental freedoms uh, are enshrined in our constitution and are the right of every, any, any Canadian in the land. And so I strongly support as a conservative, the fundamental freedoms uh, that Canadians have to exercise their right to free speech, to free expression, their right to protest and their right uh, to freely associate, um, whether it's in support or in opposition to government policy. Uh, but the second point I think is equally important, which is that there is no legally protected right. There is no fundamental freedom to blockade. And what we saw take place uh, in February of, of this year, both in Ottawa and the downtown core of our national capital, as well as at numerous international border crossings, were blockades. Uh, and there were blockades that took place at the Windsor-Detroit border crossing, the single most important border crossing in Canada, um, where hundreds of millions of dollars of merchandise goods transit each and every day. Uh, there were border blockades in Emerson, Manitoba, in Coots, Alberta, in Surrey, British Columbia. And those border blockades, as well as uh, the blockade of the downtown core in Ottawa, were not acceptable and were not only unacceptable, they were unlawful, illegal, and in some cases they were criminal. Um, and so my view is that uh, Canadians have the right to peacefully protest and it's a proud part of our democratic tradition, a constitutionally protected right, but there is no fundamental right uh, to blockade, whether it's an international border crossing, whether it's our national capital, whether it's a pipeline, that carries natural gas or oil, whether it's a highway, there is no right to blockade. And we have delegated the enforcement of the law against these blockades to local police agencies. And uh, we expect that those police agencies will uphold the law and the rule of law. Obviously, that didn't happen. And there's currently a parliamentary committee that is currently taking a look at what happened during the February blockades. And I expect that at the end of the committee's work, they will produce a report with recommendations on how in the future we can better uphold the rule of law. You are the party's current shadow foreign minister. In experience of our daily work, the Conservative Party of Canada is far more an inward looking party than one interested in international contacts and exchanges with friendly parties. Can you confirm this? And if so, What might be the reasons? After all, we live in a world that is growing ever closer together. Well, one of the roles, uh, one of the goals I have in taking on this role of as Conservative Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs is to try to strengthen the ties between uh, Conservative parties in, between the Conservative Party of Canada and Conservative parties in other liberal democracies, such as Germany, with the Christian Democrats, uh, such as the Conservatives in the United Kingdom, and other liberal democracies. And so um, that's why I was happy uh, that you invited me to participate in this interview, so that we can begin an exchange of ideas about conservatism and how we uh, might better uh, tie our respective conservatives, conservative movements together uh, between Canada, uh, the United States, the United Kingdom and Europe. And so uh, one of my goals is to strengthen that exchange uh, because I think it will lead to an exchange of ideas and relationships that will mutually benefit 
parties on both sides of the Atlantic. The words conservative and climate policy seem to not go together for the longest time. However, times have changed and conservative parties around the world have been embracing exactly that, a conservative climate policy. Canadian conservatives, however, seem to still struggle with that since last year, uh, conservative delegates at the CPC's National Policy Convention in Halifax voted to reject green-friendly statements to the policy book, including a line that would have stated that the party believes climate change is real and is willing to act. Now, you are the co-founder and a member of the All-Party Climate Caucus. How can you explain that your party is reluctant to find a conservative voice when it comes to climate policy? Well, that's a great question. And we're currently having a debate right now in our leadership race on this very question. Uh, there are differing viewpoints uh, within the Conservative Party about how to meet our climate change goals and how to reduce emissions in the most effective way. Uh, and so this debate, as you pointed out, has been going on for some time. I'm of the view that uh, conservative principles about a belief in free markets, a belief in lower taxes, a belief in uh, uh, using the power of the marketplace to achieve these reductions is the most effective way to meet our climate change goals. And I think as we watch the energy crisis unfold, both in North America and in Europe, that conservatives will, uh, will have to lead the charge in presenting solutions that will achieve the twin goals of not only reducing emissions to counter the threat of climate change, but also to do so in a way that ensures uh, the, the, the least uh, cost possible uh, and the maximum benefit possible. And so if we can achieve uh, a climate policy that's based on carbon pricing that allows the marketplace to achieve the goal of emissions reductions and use excess revenues that are generated from carbon pricing to reduce uh, regressive taxes like income taxes, um, we can achieve those two goals. And I think that has been part of the debate that has been missing uh, from many of our OECD economies. Um, too often we've seen in the last 10 years, the heavy hand of government intervention, government subsidies, government programs uh, to reduce emissions. And I think the cost is now becoming increasingly difficult for our citizens to bear, which is why we're seeing many governments now reducing uh, gasoline and diesel taxes as an effort to try to uh, reduce the burden on consumers. And so we have to we have to be part of the dialogue here, the debate about how to reduce emissions, because currently, um, as I see it, uh, the the it's the left to center parties that have been dominant in the debate about reducing emissions and the lack of a conservative voice, particularly in North America, about uh, the solutions to climate change has meant that governments have not gone and utilized, not put in place, not implemented the most efficient policies to reduce emissions. Uh, it wasn't always this way. Uh, you know, at the root of the word conservative is to conserve. Um, and it's not just conserving our traditions. It's also conserving our environment, conserving our resources for future generations. 
And so when we look at conservative governments over the last number of decades, the most environmentally minded conservative government um, as voted on by environmental NGOs in Canada was the conservative government of Brian Mulroney in the 1980s. Um, this was a government that negotiated the acid rain treaty with U.S. President Ronald Reagan, which put in place an ambitious green plan um, that would ensure ecological sustainability and uh, participated in the Rio summit in Rio de Janeiro uh, back in the early 1990s. And so uh, we once were uh, leaders in environmental um, protection. Um, and I'm confident that if we can rearticulate these principles that we believe in, uh, that we once again can reclaim that mantle in a future government. You were the driving force behind the so-called Reform Act, which received royal assent in 2015. Can you please tell us a little bit more about it and what impact it did have on Canadian politics? Well, quite simply, the principle behind the Reform Act is, I think, a principle that underpins all liberal democracies, which is a belief that power should not be concentrated in any one person or any one office. Uh, that power needs to have needs to be diffuse and needs to have checks and balances on it, ongoing checks and balances on it, in order to ensure the best outcomes. And so uh, in Canada, what has happened over recent decades is that we've seen an increasing concentration of power in one office in the land in Canada, which is the prime minister's office. And so there are many political scientists that argue that the prime minister of Canada is the single most powerful head of government um, in uh, the G7. And uh, that has come about as a result of a number of rule changes, both in law and in the standing orders of our legislature and in elections law and a myriad of other Uh, changes in the unwritten conventions that govern uh, parliament over many decades that have led to this point where uh, we now have a very powerful executive branch of government as embodied by the prime minister um, and a much weakened legislative branch of government as embodied by the House of Commons in our national parliament. And so the Reform Act was an effort to try to rebalance power in a little way between the executive branch of government and the party leader and the legislative branch of government uh, in the House, uh, the legislative branch of our system in the House of Commons. And so it passed in 2015 um, in the Conservative Party. It's been implemented. Uh, there are four rules now that have been put in place. So where once the leader of a party appointed the caucus chair, now uh, the uh, conservative members of parliament elect the caucus chair on a secret ballot vote, where once the leader of the conservative party had the unilateral and exclusive right to expel an MP from caucus, um, effectively rendering them uh, powerless as an independent member of the House of Commons, Uh, now that decision can only be made on a secret ballot vote by a majority of conservative MPs. Um, the third and fourth changes is that uh, conservatives now elect an interim leader, which we most recently did with the election of Candace Bergen as interim leader. Uh, previously, the outgoing leader appointed the interim leader. And finally, uh, the conservative caucus now has a, an explicitly written rule 
to remove uh, the leader of the party, including uh, uh, a situation where that leader is prime minister. And that was used more recently, uh, just a couple of months ago, when conservative leader Aaron O'Toole was removed by a secret ballot vote of conservative MPs. So those changes came about as a result of the Reform Act and are an effort to rebalance power uh, between party leaders, particularly the prime minister, and uh, ordinary elected members of parliament. According to your opinion, what steps need to be taken to future-proof the Conservative Party of Canada? Well, quite simply, I think what we need to do, not just here in Canada as Conservatives, but what we need to do um, as Conservatives in liberal democracies, is we need to go back to first principles. Um, the principles that underpin conservative uh, movements and conservative parties across liberal democracies are the principles embodied by the Enlightenment that laid the foundation for modern liberal democracies, a belief in individual liberties and freedoms, a belief in, uh, a belief in free markets and the power of the marketplace to achieve outcomes, a belief in increased trade and investment uh, between countries, uh, a belief in uh, ensuring that power isn't concentrated in any one office or any one person, that there are institutional checks and balances on power, that institutional um, institution building is important, that carrying on uh, and protecting and preserving traditions, particularly institutional traditions are important, uh, What the, what the Romans called mos maiorum, the way of the ancients, the way, you know, the tradition of the ancestors. Um, I think we need to re-articulate re these principles, which have were so powerful in creating the modern West, uh, which have led to unprecedented levels of prosperity, uh, unprecedented levels of justice, unprecedented levels of um, of uh, social outcomes in our liberal democracies. We need to re-articulate these powerful principles in a way that appeals to our citizens, uh, in a way that translates into practical policies, both domestic and foreign, uh, that will allow us to continue this great tradition. Uh, and I think if we do that, we will pass along to our children and grandchildren uh, a better future than the one we inherited. And I think that's the way forward for us to reimagine uh, conservatism. You have been actively involved in politics for many, many years. Can you share with us some of the key lessons you have learned about leadership and winning elections? Well, I think uh, one of the things I've learned is that events often drive the agenda. You know, I think when one is a younger person, one imagines that one can control, um, you know, can control, uh, control things and through, you know, the, the uh, decisions made uh, affect outcomes. I think as I gain experience through my life, what I realize is that often events overtake uh, even the best uh, leaders. And so I think it's always, I think leadership, um, What is essential to leadership is to be mindful of events and the opportunities that they present and to constantly listen to people, listen to uh, 
voters, listen to colleagues, listen to experts, um, so that when an opportunity presents itself because of changing events, that one is able to quickly take advantage of the situation uh, in order to affect an outcome. And I think that's one of the lessons of leadership that I've learned over the last uh, several decades being in politics. You know, um, I think uh, I think if you if you look at the um, great events of history, often it was because someone was at the right place at the right time who had spent decades in the wilderness um, gathering experience, gathering um, their thoughts and listening to people. And at some point when that opportunity, that moment in history came, they were ready and able uh, to take on the challenge. And I think often leadership is an expression of that movement of history. Michael Chong, Shadow Foreign Minister of the Conservative Party of Canada, thank you for participating in Canada Mitzi. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung Canada and stay tuned for upcoming events, publications and more, you're welcome to visit our homepage and sign up for our quarterly newsletter at ks.de slash Canada. Thank you and we look forward to having you back in our next episode of Canada mit See.